Hello, and welcome to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. This is the third episode of Lent Term 2019 in our series of brief conversations with academics who come to present at our weekly seminar. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Smith. I'm a PhD student at Trinity Hall here in Cambridge, and I'm very excited to be joined today by Kareem Walther, who's an Associate Professor of History at Georgetown University, Qatar. Kareem holds a PhD in History from Columbia University, and in 2015 she published her fantastic first book, Sacred Interests, The United States and the Islamic World, 1821-1921, with the University of North Carolina Press. Sacred Interests, which was selected for a 2016 Choice Outstanding Academic title, traces the deep history of American Islamophobia across an array of different contexts. It shows how negative perceptions of Islam significantly shaped US foreign relations with enduring consequences. Kareen is continuing to explore the relationship between religion and US foreign relations as she moves towards her second book, Spreading the Faith, American Missionaries, Aramco, and the Birth of the US-Saudi Special Relationship, 1889-1955. Kareem, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So, we're going to talk about your paper today, about your wider research, and a bit about your broader experiences as a historian. Your paper takes its title from your second book project, Spreading the Faith, American Missionaries, Aram Co., and the Birth of the US-Saudi Special Relationship, 1889-1955. Can you give us a brief synopsis of what you're going to talk about? Sure. Um, well, tonight I'm going to actually present the central arguments of the book um, in order to get some feedback. And what I'm arguing is that um, there's a lot of scholarship that's been done recently on the history of American development and modernization theory, which emerged in the late 1950s and 1960s. And what I argue in the book is that in order to really understand um, these theories, we actually have to go back in time to the pre-World War II era to look at um, the work of American missionaries on the ground, but also back in the United States as they helped to shape these programs and um, the Middle East Studies programs where we would see the emergence of modernization theory. And how does this paper you're giving today fit into your current work and your wider research? So in the previous book, I was looking at how, I mean, a lot of the book was looking at how American missionaries had shaped American foreign policy and the interactions between policymakers and members of religious organizations more generally. So when I was doing the research for that previous book, I actually came across this group of missionaries who were um, working throughout Arabia and including um, giving medical so they were medical missionaries and they were treating Ibn Saud, the founder of Saudi Arabia. And I was actually fascinated that these American Protestant missionaries um, were trying to proselytize in the middle of, of course, uh, you know, a Wahhabi country. So I began to look more deeply into this because nobody had really, very few people had really talked about this group. And usually in um, works that look at U.S.-Saudi relations or the history of Aramco, they usually get one or two lines. So when I began to look at this group, I realized that actually their influence was um, very important, not only in forging a really you know, strong relationship between Americans and Ibn Saud before the arrival of oil men, but also after the arrival, after the United States signed a concession in 1933, the missionaries were really crucial in helping to set up many of the programs that Aramco had set up. Great. Hmm. 
And did this specific focus on missionaries within a, a particular cultural context do anything to change your ideas about how the United States views the Islamic world, as you outlined in your first book? Yes, I mean, I think what was interesting about the missionaries that I studied in Arabia, in contrast to the ones that I studied um, in the first book, is that although in the beginning they have some pretty hostile views about Islam, um, by the time by the time that Aramco arrives, so we're talking 1930s again, 1940s, these missionaries had been working with Arabs and Muslims um, for almost 40 years, and. I see a very strong shift in their vision of Islam that's much more ecumenical over time. Um, they're really forging very strong and respectful relationships with local Muslims. And, and because of the four decades that I'm studying them, that's where I see the shift, right? Because in the first book I end in 1921, here since I go up to the 1940s, 1950s, um, I really see the difference with the missionaries, and of course this is part of a wider shift that we see in American Protestant missionaries more generally across the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and how do you think this sort of missionary impulse is connected to an American quest to secure resources? Um, how far do you see these two projects as complementing one another, and how far do you see them as pulling against one another? Well, I think the missionaries and you know oil corporations are all they're both out for something. <laughs> it's very different, right? But it's in some ways aligned. Um, the missionaries are out, of course, initially to convert Muslims and to what they see as saving Muslims, right? With Aramco, it's a little bit different, although the narrative, and this is what I argue in the book, the narrative in many ways builds on this idea of saving Arabs um, through this idea of bringing progress and modernity to Arabia. And so in that way, I think when Aramco and the oil executives come, their mission, you know, so to speak, is really... I mean, it makes sense to build on what the American missionaries have already done. Now, in what ways are they at cross-purposes? I would say that, well, there are two things. I mean, first of all, um, some of the American oil workers were not always behaving in the most appropriate ways on the ground, and I think this is, was really shocking both to local Arabs, but also, of course, it was detrimental to the missionaries' um, goals, which was to show kind of a more enlightened Christian America. In other ways, I think that the idea of Aramco to bring progress and modernity to Arabia hid, hid kind of self-interested goals, right? Self-interested motivations. And there are some scholars, of course, who have already pointed this out. So Robert Vitalis has demonstrated that even though companies like Aramco were putting out this narrative of American benevolence, what we see on the ground is actually um, much more exploitative, right? Including uh, the exploitation of labor and um, some very kind of racialized understandings of, of um, workers. So in that way, I think also they're, they're not quite aligned. Hmm. That's interesting. And that, that's really interesting in the context of the sort of increasingly rich literature that we have from various historians uh, working in various subfields of history talking about what 
missionaries can offer us as a perspective on American foreign relations. So what what do you feel your project sort of adds to that? What particular perspectives do you think missionaries are offering the scholar on US foreign relations by looking at this context? So I think that one of the things that we've seen quite often with US diplomatic historians is this tendency to see a pre-1945 and a post-1945 moment, right? Um, that's also been very true for historians that are looking at the kind of um, history of development programs where it tends to be more 1949 and the Truman Doctrine, right? The point four of the Truman Doctrine that serves as the watershed moment. What I'm arguing in the book is really that we can't, the division doesn't make very much sense and that we need to look at the origins of these ideas back not only to missionaries who who were the first to put these programs, um, what I call missionary development programs on the ground to initiate them, but also of course American empire. Um, Many of the narratives, the rhetoric of um, progress and development, including programs that uh, address public health, uh, industrial education, and industrial development had been initiated by American empire and missionaries long before 1945. So I think by looking at these programs, it helps to kind of pull apart this idea of 1945 or 1949 as a watershed and instead looks at the continuity between American missionary work, but also the continuity between formal American empire and neo-imperialism. Mm. Yeah, that's, that sounds like a really valuable and, and timely contribution to that, to that strand of the literature. You're also framing your book and, and your paper today in terms of the, the US-Saudi special relationship, um, which has been under the microscope yet again in recent times, I suppose. Um, so what do you think we can learn from history which helps us understand the uh, formation and the endurance of the relationship, even as it faces this great scrutiny? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I made an error in the title. I meant to put double quotes around special relationship. <laughs> this idea of special relationship, you know, there's many special relationships between, you know, including um, between the United States and, and the UK, of mm-hmm. course. Mm-hmm. Um, what does it mean? I mean, I think in many ways what we see emerging from this historical moment is is how American ideas about anti-imperialism or the rhetoric of anti-imperialism help to shape, ironically, the special relationship. So when, according to the story, when Ibn Saud decides to sign an oil concession with Americans, with the United States and not with the British, he based this on two reasons. One was his close relationship with American missionaries, and second, and relatedly, is that he believed that the United States was not an empire like the British. Now, he got this idea, of course, from Americans. So what fascinates me is the way in which Americans um, were able able to advance neo-imperialism by using anti-imperialist rhetoric. Mm. So where do we see this relationship going? The United States and Saudi are going to forge um, increasingly close relationship. By World War II, we're going to see the United States uh, deliver arms and military equipment to Saudi for the first time as part of the Lend-Lease program. They deliver over a hundred million dollars of aid, which is just stunning, right? So this is the first time that this relationship starts to see the exchange of weapons as part of the you know quote-unquote special relationship. Now, fast forward to today, we 
definitely see the outcome of the special relationship, including American arms sales to Saudi, and how this impacts uh, the massive impact this has had on the region, including, of course, most recently, Yemen. Um, the other aspect, of course, to the U.S.-Saudi special relationship is that Saudi Arabia developed um, in ways that perhaps the United States supported, right? I mean, having an authoritarian in power is much easier when you have um, interests in the country. And so I think when we're seeing this idea of progress and development, or when the Americans were putting forth this idea of progress and development, I don't know that they foresaw what, it, what would happen. And of course, now with um, the murder of journalists abroad, we are starting to understand and to get the question of what exactly this special relationship has led to, including you know, some of the negative consequences. Mm, that's interesting. Thank you. Um, and what, sort of on that note, what new or different perspectives are you perhaps gaining on your research uh, by being an American historian working out in the Gulf region? Well, I'm in the Gulf region, but more importantly, I'm in Qatar right now. And Qatar, of course, um, has been going through a very difficult time because of the Saudi blockade, Saudi-led blockade. So I think what's interesting is the ways in which Saudi Arabia is exerting power, not only over its citizens, but also over other countries that surround it, right? And this is one of the... Um, this is one, I think, of the outcomes of um, trying to control the region. Mm -hmm. Now, what's most interesting about this is that one of the um, say one of the objections that Saudi Arabia has had against Qatar is that it was supportive of revolutions, of Arab revolu revolutions during the Arab Spring. Mm -hmm. Now, it's interesting that Saudi Arabia, who is now in this you know special relationship with the United States, mm -hmm. is actively um, trying to repress Qatar because of its support for these, you know, ostensibly um, democratic movements, uh, while Qatar also, of course, uh, a dictatorship, <laughs> is supportive of it. So I think in that way it's been interesting to see how, um, how Saudi attempts to shape the region have had a, you know, still have repercussions, including on Qatar, where I am teaching. Mm. Thank you. And as you've moved towards this second book, is there a book or an article you've read in the last 12 months that's gotten you really excited? Yes. Um, so, you know, in the paper tonight, I argue that um, there have been very few scholars who really make the connection between um, development policies in the 1950s and modernization theory and the missionaries. And I would say that one of the exceptions is a great book by Jedediah Kroenke, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, called The Future of Law and Development. And it looks at how missionaries and other Americans, including businesses, um, were shaping ideas about modernization and how the Chinese were actually um, integrating these changes or in some ways fighting, fighting the changes, but how the missionaries and the corporations were really connecting to ideas about modernization um, including to the post-1950s period. So he starts early and then ends um, in many ways at the same time period. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's been a great book to look at, and I, you know, I hope that others um, will do the same in Latin America and other parts of Asia. Mm, great, yeah. Um, what's the most interesting place you've been for your research? Well, I mean, I don't know that it was an interesting place. It was an interesting experience. Um, at one point, I had to go to 
um, the archives, the missionary archives of, um, I won't name the group, but it was in Kansas City. <laughs> and they were still being housed in um, this religious organization's um, buildings. And so when I went to look at these archives, um, the person who was helping me there was trying to convert me at the same time to evangelical <laughs> Christianity. So I think that was probably one of the most interesting archival experiences yeah, that's, that I've had. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Sounds like a, an unusual bonus, certainly. Um, and as is customary on the American History Seminar podcast, um, I'll finish by asking you, what's your favorite album? My favorite album, I would have to say, is... Um, the Tom Waits Early Years album, mm. which united many of the best of mm. his um, early songs, which I can listen to again and again. <laughs> That's a highly respectable choice, yeah. Um, so, Kareem Walther, thank you very much. I'm really looking forward to the discussion later and to seeing this work emerge as a book. Thank you so much, and I'm also looking forward to your future book. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>